Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. This is an absolutely wonderful passage, an absolutely wonderful day. As was said earlier, the reason today is called Gaudet Sunday is it is a day of joy in the context of a season which is somewhat more focused on anticipation and repentance. Uh, Advent is not a penance. It is a season of intentional reminder and spiritual practice so as to cultivate hope and cultivate anticipation so that Christmas would be seen as precious and sweet and a wonderful and yet necessary gift. One of the things that I like to highlight in my Christmas discussions and sermons is that unlike the gifts we give to each other, the gift of Christ that God gives to his people for the redemption of the nations is a necessary gift. That Christ's and, and that is why and how it becomes joyful. If Christ is something that is just ancillary, if he's just tangential to the fundamental things of life, if he's not really anything that's primal, but rather something that's secondary, then Christ is not precious and Christ is not sweet. And yet we see at a passage like this, it is the only means of the transformation of the world. He is what Isaiah is speaking of concerning the transformation of the wilderness into a garden. And so I want to take you through this passage of scripture and highlight five specific elements. First, the element of the wilderness becoming a garden. 
that God is taking the nations of the earth and transforming them through his gospel and by his spirit, who is often called a river, and that activity being done in the context of his judgment on Israel and his transmission of the the covenants and the kingdom to a new redeemed community. Now, in saying that, there is a continuity. There is some of Israel who does uh, join the new people of God. It is not as if the church has superseded Israel, but rather those who are in the church today are in Israel, as the New Testament bears out. Paul argues that the Jew is not the Jew externally, but the one who is a Jew internally is a Jew. That is to say, there's no difference between Old Testament and New, the identification of those who are God's people, merely just the external identification and the administration of the covenant. But those who are followers of God are engrafted into this new group of people, and Isaiah tells us that that new group of people will primarily be the nations of the earth after God has destroyed them and judged them and raised them up to new life. That in this context of the history, it's almost as if with the Gentiles, he resurrects the Gentiles who are dead. And and I hope that makes sense in the context of our gospel. We're going to look at the prefiguring or the foreshadowing of Christ in his miraculous power, as Isaiah tells specifically, of certain things that will come to pass at the coming of the Messiah. And then we are going to look at how those ones who are redeemed become a part of the transformation and the mission of Christ to the earth and how they are to pursue him along this way of holiness. That that holiness is not only necessary, but it is fundamental to the gospel. Holiness is not something that is an extra for Christians. Holiness is part of what it means to become a Christian. We're going to go into that very deeply. One of the things that's very important to know just before we get there is it is not as if you become a Christian on your own merits and then are sanctified in Christ. Neither is it that you are restored and renewed and justified by the blood of Christ and then perfect yourself. All of it has to do with one kernel of truth, which is repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. In fact, this is so often muddled in the, in the case, in the gospel presentations today, that many people are convinced that repentance is simply turning from sin, and it has nothing to do with faith in God, trust in God, belief in his word, belief in his promises, or any sort of reformation of soul. They think it is a reformation of character that they themselves perform. They hear the gospel call to believe in Christ and to turn from their sins, and they presume that they are the ones who are able to turn from their sins. The gospel call is merely to have faith in God, and that is what I believe simply is this way of holiness, which works itself out in a particular and necessary way. And then finally, we're going to look at the joy that is given to these ones who walk on the way. Uh, Probably my main point today is that so many Christians think that holiness is the abstaining from legitimate pleasures, which they are removing from themselves so as to obtain some sort of favorable standing with God, all the while not knowing that it is the most joyful, indeed the only joyful life to have, is one that is lived in holiness to God. 
And so joy and holiness are not diametrically opposed. They are together. They are unified. That's why we are talking about the joyful and holy way of Christ, that those things go hand in hand. So last uh, week and the week prior, we saw God's warnings of judgment that were coming on the people of Israel, and the people of Israel were guilty of perverting their faith, and, and the leaders specifically are called shepherds who did not pay attention to the people. They did not pay attention to the weightier provisions of the law, mercy and justice, and they oppressed the people with both governmental and religious laws, which caused the widows and the orphans to be consumed and devoured. The prophets use the language of food, that the, those who are the tyrants, the shepherds who are wayward, are consuming the people. One, one might only think of a few things in our cultural context, abortion, predatory lending, like if you've ever seen cash advance places. Those places are abominations to God because they consume the tragedy of the poor. Rather than lifting the poor up and providing for and restoring those who are downtrodden, they take advantage, they prey upon those who are weak and are disenfranchised. And so God has a controversy with Israel. He says, because your shepherds do not attend to the important things of the faith, I will attend to them. And we saw how God promised to raise up Assyria to come and judge the people of Israel and Judah and to take them away in a captivity, which would leave the promised land as a desolation. The reason I bring this up is because this chapter presents a scene of the wilderness, and if you don't understand the backstory and the context of Isaiah 33 and 34, you may suppose that this wilderness is the former promised land after the exile. But indeed, it is not, and it is very clear that it is not. It is something new. It is a new place of land that God has not yet dealt with, and now he is beginning to take action in this new place, this wilderness. That wilderness is a prophetic image of the land of the nations, the land of the Gentiles, as we'll see very quickly. So Isaiah's vision of judgment on Israel is punctuated, therefore. It's, it's kind of like a period or where the sentence is ending. God judges in Isaiah 33 and 34. He judges the nations, even Assyria, for their harsh treatment of his people, even though he himself raised up Assyria as a rod which with, with which he smashed the rebellious leaders of Israel, even though he raised them up, they took it too far. We saw that last week, that God promises that he will relent in his judgment and he will not judge unmercifully, but he will judge perfectly, remembering mercy even in the midst of judgment. And so after Assyria becomes wayward, they become tyrannical themselves, he then judges them and the other nations which were persecuting Israel, the Edomites, the Moabites, etc. if you're familiar with the history of the scriptures. He not only judges them, but now he promises, after making them a wasteland, he will now make them into a garden. After God brings the judgment that is brought on by a desolation of sin, he promises to restore. It's important to understand that God did not bring something on the Gentiles that was unmerited, but rather the scriptures speak of sin 
as a desolating thing. That is, sin itself, the committing of sin, the retaining of sin, the approval of sin, the love of sin, brings desolation upon you. It works desolation in you. And that applies both to people and nations. Peoples, cultures, nations, when they retain and receive and love and approve and promote sin, it has a desolating effect. It makes them desolate. That's what it means for something to be desolating. And so God brings a right judgment on the nations, and yet he promises to one day restore and return. The unique work, therefore, that is seen here, the turning of a desert into a garden, is demonstrating the glory of the worker. That is to say that a desert cannot become a garden at all. If you are familiar with the world's geography, there is one great desert in our world, the Sahara, and it is growing at a rate that is, it's just amazing. And the reason it's growing is because at the borders and edges of the desert, the desert is so so closely and so perfectly a place of death and desolation and, and ruin that all those areas which are on its periphery, on its edges, are being eaten up. The desert is transforming those things which are around it. Now, God may or may not stop that. I'm not an expert in uh, geology, nor am I an expert in climate or what have you, but the point is the imagery of the Sahara is what a desert is. Those who go into deserts don't usually come out unless they take extreme provision with them. And even then, the, the landscape changes, they get lost. Deserts are not places to live, And deserts are not able to be transformed by man. Deserts are only able able to be transformed by God. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. This is one of my, small sidebar, this is one of my uh, points that I don't like about the ESV. From time to time, when the... Old Testament and the New King James is translated from the Greek and the Hebrew together. They often use words that are appropriate and match in the New Testament. Here the ESV used to have the word lily, and now it has the word crocus. You don't know what a crocus flower is. You know what a lily flower is. Lilies spring up every year in the spring. Lilies don't happen to spring up in the middle of the year. They don't come out in the fall. They cannot come out in the winter. They come out in the spring. God here is shown not only as transforming the world of this desert into a garden, which he is going to cause to bloom with these wonderful, sweet-smelling, aromatic flowers, but he himself is changing the times. He is bringing about a spring such as the desert, which is now a garden, which does not have or didn't have before these lily buds, is now going to burst forth with these flowers. This is the language of scriptures, poetic and prophetic imagery, which tells us about the glory of God. And so, obviously, the text points out to us this implication, who is the one working? It is not man, but rather God himself who promises this transformation. As we saw last week in the promise for God to pacify the various beasts that the, that the uh, wolf shall lay, lay down with the lamb together, that there was a necessary transformation that was implied 
by the scriptures. Here the exact same thing takes place. God promises to transform the world in which these wild beasts, the Gentiles, live and to transform the world and make it a garden sanctuary in which there would be flower and aroma, a pleasing sacrifice to him coming from the earth. This place used to be full of wild beasts, but now the desert itself will rejoice. This is wonderful language to describe the power of God in transforming the nations through the gospel. Verse 2, it shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with, with joy and singing. Notice the word rejoice itself is a repeat of joy. And the prophet is saying it shall rejoice with joy. That is to say that the prophet is intending to say that the magnification and amplification of the joy that God gives to this new world that he's making is such that it is perfect and multiplying and expounding. And like so many wonderful songs we sing at Christmas, is ought to be experienced as a round. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. What's the last line? Repeat. Repeat. The sounding joy. This is what is described by the prophet as the reason for the joy of the world. The joy of the world is none other than that which comes to make the desert into a spring. He goes on to describe exactly how this will take place. He says that the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The glory of Lebanon will be taken from Lebanon and it will be transferred to that which was a desert and is now a garden. Likewise, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon they, that is, the nations of the earth, shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It's so important to understand the context of Isaiah 33 and 34 because this is not a prophecy of the restoration of the exiles back to the land, but rather a transmission, a giving away of the kingdom to the Gentiles. The glory of Lebanon, historically, scripturally, is her tall cedars. Whenever you see the word Lebanon in the, in the scriptures, it's often describing the glory of her trees. Cedar trees, Lebanon cedar trees, are hundreds and 500 and 600 year old trees, which are tall, mighty, strong, and very good for wood. And it is the cedars of Lebanon which God commands to be used in the construction of the furniture of the tabernacle and temple, uh, specifically the temple, the, um, the tabernacle, most of it's Achaia. Nevertheless, the point is, the imagery is here that the glory, which was in Lebanon, the glory of being able to contribute to the temple building of God, is going to be transmitted to the Gentile nations. It no longer will be the portion of Lebanon, but will be a portion of the new kingdom people. Carmel and Sharon are mountains and hills which were used for vineyards and pasture lands. And hopefully... If you're familiar with the gospel narrative and motif, these languages are starting to make sense. That is, God is going to give away something that was beneficial to the people of Israel because they never made use of it. Though Israel had these things by nature, that is, she possessed the physical blessings that attended to 
the temple and the nation having a wonderful land filled with milk and honey. All of these blessings she did not use to her right advantage, but perverted the use of them, using them for herself instead of bringing and extending the glory of God. The Israelites were supposed to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, and yet so often they took the sins of the Gentiles into their own lives and hearts. Namely, as we saw last week, the sin of Sodom, which was not just sodomy, but idleness, fullness of bread, complacency to the poor, and multiplying of house to house. One of the things that's interesting about our culture today is that there has been a resurgence of building extravagantly huge houses. And it, it's, so, it's so crazy that now, if you look at like the, I forget the specific details, but I was reading a report on real estate and home building, and now the average space, the square footage that a person has today in homes that are built, the average place, is greater than entire families had just in the 1950s. That is to say that they want their houses to be so big that hopefully they don't have to see each other or anything like that. That's one of the curses of God is that it comes on those who build house to house. That is, they, they use everything in their world, especially their time, to simply multiply their material possessions. They give no thought towards mercy, no thought towards compassion and charity. And so God judges them. And yet, at this point, God takes the things that Israel had and did not use rightly and gives them away. Jesus himself prophesies this in Matthew 21 and 23. The things which were given to Israel are then transmuted to the Gentiles. One of the things that's interesting about that is we often are in this place where we're not really sure where the kingdom is. Like Jesus said, the kingdom is at hand, but we know that the kingdom's not yet here. An interesting thing, Jesus says to the Israelites that the kingdom's going to be taken away from them and given to a people producing its fruits. So the implication is that Israel had the kingdom and it's removed from her. So you, that automatically ultima excludes a position that holds that the kingdom is still yet to come. That is a sidebar. So those things which the Israelites have rejected, namely the things of mercy, sacrifice, justice, compassion for the poor, righteousness towards God, right worship from the heart, all those things, the covenants and the kingdom that they describe are disposed by them. That is, they throw them away like trash and the nations through the gospel receive them based on the promises and sovereign work of God alone. When Esau was getting rid of his birthright, he, Esau did not leave his birthright behind. He despised it and gave it away, and Jacob was right to take it from him. The reason why Jacob is right to take it from him, and it was no dishonesty so as to be iniquitous on Jacob's part, was that the birthright, the things of the kingdom, ought never to be left on the ground. Israel had completely rejected the Messiah, and God would be totally unjust and totally unmerciful should he then just leave the rest of the nations alone because Israel herself did not wish to take those things up. God was right to give the kingdom to the Gentiles. And therefore, it's right to understand, there. yes, there is a continuity, but in large measure, the new covenant is much wonder, more wonderful and glorious than anything that God had ever done, namely that the kingdom is dispersed among the Gentiles.
So all of this is speaking about the coming glory of Christ. None of this is fulfilled before the coming of Christ. In the prior chapters, we talked about how there was an exile and return, but in a very large measure, this passage has never been fulfilled up until the time of Christ. And so everything that Isaiah is seeing and speaking is therefore speaking of the glory of Christ and the things which come to pass after his coming. It's so important for us to understand that because on a journey, it is often the case that because the journey is long, because the destination is far out, uh, especially children have trouble maintaining their heart while they're waiting for the journey to be over. If you've ever been on a road trip with small children, you know the refrain, are we there yet? This is a passage that describes the condition the condition that is necessary for believers to have in their heart, it is to understand the glory of Christ and to see the things which attend to it. This passage is very important for a cultural context such as ours, when if we look naturally, most of the church in America is despising the things that she is supposed to be inheriting and leaving them on the wayside, and yet God is right and will absolutely restore the joy of his people, those who he causes to be faithful to him. So passages like this that speak of the coming glory of Christ and those things which are done by his ministers, that is the apostles, the prophets who come uh, to the forefront in the church, those things are treasures which you ought to store up and allow to transform your vision of the progress of the kingdom in time. The call that's given to those who see the glory of, the God, of God is to encourage the weak and the troubled among them. This is why I say it's important to arm yourself with these, not only for history, but also your personal history with God. He says in verse 3, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an, <clears throat> say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. This is the commandment given to the people of God, namely the leaders, although this commandment is given to all Christians. And this commandment is to identify those who have weak knees, not actual weak knees, but spiritually weak knees, and encourage them to strengthen themselves in the Lord to arm themselves with knowledge such that their mind is fortified against the assaults of the enemy in false doctrine. <clears throat> but also, is, uh, they are to have their trust multiplied in God so that they are spiritually nourished in their heart. The, oftentimes, the temptations that come against you are not necessarily abstract or theological. Many of us can identify heresy when it's clearly printed on the page. The deception is often in our heart that we are slow to believe in the promises of God and we are quick to question whether we are in the grace of God or quick to question whether or not it is right to pursue God with all of our lives. So many Christians who believe in the propositional truth of the gospel, who even, temp, uh, even in their day-to-day uh, -day life, they look to Christ for salvation, are still full of mixture whether it's right to live as a Christian completely and perfectly. And, and this, I believe, is what Isaiah is asking for the ministers of the gospel and every Christian 
to complete and do. It is to strengthen those things which need strengthening. He says to say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Notice the anxious heart is a heart that is weak. Do you understand anxiety in your heart? I am very acquainted with anxiety. Anyone who is ever honest with themselves for even a moment of time in examining this passage can tell you or tell themselves, if you're honest with the word of God, you are often anxious. And yet Isaiah presents this as a weakness, a weakness of knees, something which causes you to not be able to stand, right? It's not just a, a, the ability to kneel before God in worship, but those, those things which are weak cause us not to persevere. And he says to take pains, to strengthen them, to be diligent about it. The reason why is because God will bring about a vengeance. And this vengeance that God brings about is a foreshadowing of the days of vengeance, specifically the judgment that God brings on Israel as she is beginning to persecute the newly founded church. This is a literal quote from, uh, from those times. It, it is called the days of vengeance. Jesus himself identifies that Jerusalem will be surrounded and God will bring about the days of vengeance. This is no mere illusion, it is a direct reference. God is going to strengthen his people at the time of the first century by giving them surety that he will not abandon them, that they will not fall under the weight of persecution, but that they will persevere. Why is this important? Because so much of the political and religious scenario of the American contemporary scene in the 21st century is bent against the word of God and those like you, like me, who wish to uphold the law of God and the word of God as truth, not only for private personal religious use, but also for righteousness in the public square, will face great persecution. And those who face great persecution must arm themselves with the knowledge that God in the past in history has proved faithful, he will bring about vengeance on those who persecute his people. If you do not know that, you will not stand in the days that are coming 40 years from now. If you think the persecution is beginning to get bad now, just let the tape play out. Now, I don't think that the world will exist in some cataclysmic existence, but I think that God is not going to simply let America have her way forever. If I know the scriptures, if I know history, I know that is the case. And as he brings judgment on the empires throughout history, they routinely persecute his people. The reason it's important to know the scripture and the prophecy of Isaiah in connection with the first century church is it is going to play itself out over and over again. Now, of course, I do believe the gospel will make long-lasting progress throughout time, but nevertheless, it is not something that we can just be, you know, positing in our minds, yes, God will be faithful to his people and not know for sure. So, <clears throat> Christians ought to today heed this call. It is not ministers alone who ought to be responsible for encouraging and strengthening their brothers and sisters. 
test yourself in this. When is the last time that you encouraged anyone with a verse or a doctrine or a godly perspective for their circumstances? It is part of your job, it is part of your discipleship calling as a Christian to take hold of the righteous use of God's graces and be able to give them to your brothers and sisters. Do you see that as a part of your calling? One of my favorite things that God is doing right now is he's restoring a, uh, imp- the importance of the creedal uh, practice and, and catechism as well as confessions and the memory of scripture. And what's been so heartwarming to me over the last few weeks as I've given myself towards uh, practicing these things more and more is that frequently the very next day that verse or, or phrase is useful to someone else. And it makes real and lasting application to others. We are all commanded to be uh, obeying this command to strengthen those things which are weak because God will be faithful. And the reason we are to strengthen them is because our hope is anchored in God's nature and actions in history. They tell of his ways. We have need of endurance. And so these promises that are given by Isaiah are directly filled in the ministry of Christ. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Christ opens the eyes of a blind man in John 9, a man who was born blind. He also likewise heals the paralytic. And the paralytic, both in this passage and then some other passages with the lepers, they go up leaping with shouts of joy. Christ literally fulfills to the letter this prophecy concerning his power. And not only that, his people go on to do the same. He releases those who are filled with mute and deaf spirits, and that work is multiplied in his people. The disciples continue this ministry which they receive from Christ, and they do this both in the public square, doing miracles, signs and wonders in person, but also spiritually speaking. These things always happen at the preaching of the gospel. And it's important to note the uniqueness of the claim that the eyes of those who are blind will be open. All throughout Israel's history, prophets had come and done signs and wonders and miracles, but no one, not even Elijah, had healed a man born blind. And so the uniqueness and glory of Christ is seen in this prophecy. And yet, that same thing is given in the gospel today. All men are born blind. It is not that some men are born blind and others are born with good sight. All men are born blind. That is, they are born spiritually blind. They cannot see God in their sin. Jesus says that the pure in God will see him. Those who are pure in heart, they will be blessed because they will see God as he is. And yet, as a wonderful promise as that is, it also is a grand indictment because there are none who are pure in heart. If Jesus simply gives us the positive aspect of that message, that the pure in heart will see God, woe are we, for we are not pure in heart. We can't see God in our sin. We can't perceive God. We can't search for him. We're blind. And yet he promises to send those who are able to open the eyes. Through the gospel, God always opens blind eyes to those who are called to follow after Christ. Something that's very interesting to me is in Acts 6 and Acts 9, or sorry, Acts 7 and Acts 9, we see Paul doing some things that are extremely bad. 
He's going after the church. He's persecuting them. He is seeking to take down those who are following this new uh, faith called in those very passages, the way, which we'll get to in a minute. But he goes as one who is looking for those who are Christians. He's doing something with his eyes that is iniquitous. He is searching out the synagogues to identify who are Christians and who are not. And God stops him dead in his tracks. He puts an end to Paul's evil use of his eyes, the looking for the Christians. And now he causes Paul to, by grace, see Christ in his glory. Paul sees Christ in his glory and goes from seeing externally and being blind internally to being full of knowledge and truth internally. That is, seeing Christ, he is, he is shown the error of his ways. He is brought to a realization of his sin and hatred of Christ and is convinced of his deep need for Christ. And then he is struck blind after that. And for a period of three days, he is without sight. Paul himself likewise uses this exact same imagery. We were once dead, but the gospel, the glory of God has shone into our hearts through Christ. That is to say that there is a spiritual understanding of these words. This is not just describing the ministry of Christ, but it is describing the ministry of those who are united to him. Those who are born spiritually dead upon hearing the voice of Christ are brought to new life. Jesus says that there is an hour coming in which the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and they will live. Now, I know that the word deaf and dead are not the same word. But let me just explain that being dead is a very special type of deafness. You can't hear anything when you're dead. And yet God says at the preaching and proclamation of his word that the entry of the word will bring life and goodness to those who hear. They will come to life. Those who drink of Christ never thirst again, but they are given rivers of living water. And this is Isaiah's specific meaning. The reason why these things will take place is because of Isaiah 6. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. How interesting it is that he not only says, Jesus, when he's describing those who receive the Spirit, they don't receive a river, they don't receive a lake, they receive rivers, plural, to talk about the multiplicity of the Spirit of God in ministry, bring, bringing what they have, showing people Christ. That is bringing life and water to them. And I think the text demands that we understand it this way. Not only that one Christian is involved in this ministry, in continuing the ministry of Christ, but all Christians are commanded. This is the calling of every disciple. Every Christian is commissioned by God to join him in the work of making a desert a spring. He says the desert will become a spring, but then in 6b and 7, he says, for waters, plural, break forth in the wilderness. It is not you're not able to transform a desert by one river alone. If you ever want to get a picture of just how many rivers there are in the United States, get out an atlas or go on Wikipedia and look at the major rivers. We all know of the Ohio and the Miami and the Mississippi. I saw a map two weeks ago, and everywhere in the United States is covered with rivers and streams and good places to drink from. Not so in a desert. 
So therefore, I think this passage is describing the need for all Christians, the majority of a church, to be involved in giving what they have in their understanding of the gospel towards those who are still in a place of death. Isaiah goes on to describe that the the way of holiness that is in this newly reformed desert garden, he describes it as a way of holiness, and he namely is describing Christ himself. It says in verse 8, a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. I love this verse because it describes not only the glory of Christ, but the cause and means of the perseverance of those who follow after him. Those who are renewed in Christ Jesus are cleansed They are declared righteous. They are sanctified. They're set apart by the Holy Spirit for ministry, but they are also being sanctified. That is to say, this way of holiness is not just a lifestyle in which someone goes on a journey with no intended destination, but it is a particular journey with an end in mind. Probably one of the cultural narratives that is the most uh, vile and simply just insane is this idea that people in their life, especially even Christians, are just on this journey. And they take the language of scripture, the holiness walk, the way of holiness, and they pervert it so as to excuse wandering in their understanding of Christianity. Have you ever heard this language? Perhaps you yourself have used this language. If some Christian encourages you or rebukes you, maybe you've responded to pastoral advice in this manner. Well, I'm, you know, I'm just on a journey. I'm really seeking God. And I'm just, you know, I have to go about finding my own way. Notice the singularity of vision. There is a way of holiness. Not many ways in the desert, not many ways through this new garden sanctuary, but rather a way of holiness. There is one particular way. It is the emulation of Christ Jesus. And that emulation of Christ Jesus is something that is guaranteed to those who are remade after his image. A warning here is enjoined by the prophet saying that those who are unclean or unsanctified or unbelieving, that is all implied by the the word unclean, all of them are warned that if they persist in that, so as to never make a true profession of faith and to repent from their sins and to forsake them forever, they shall not go over it. That is to say, those who are unclean, those who are, who, who are unbelieving, those who are unspiritual, they will fall away off of that way. At the same time, however, For those who are truly believers, for those who have been regenerated, it is possessed even as they walk on it. Look closely. It says, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Christian who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, hear clearly the voice of God saying in this verse that you possess the holiness which you seek when you seek after the Lord with all your heart. Notice it says, it shall belong to those who walk on it. That is to say, even while you understand the weakness of your indwelling sin, even after coming to Christ and being washed and sanctified, knowing those things with which you struggle, do not despair, for you possess the way of holiness even as you walk upon it. 
That way of holiness is wonderful and precious, especially at the last promise, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. You see, our culture hates distinguishing between different types of people, but there are people who are not wise. There are people who are spiritual babes. There are people who are spiritually foolish, even though they are new creations in Christ. They have not yet armed themselves with knowledge and truth. But here is what I believe this way is describing. The way is not describing sinless perfection, nor is it describing complete sanctification. And this, should, this is the reason why we have joy today in the reading of this passage, is because those who are even still on the journey of holiness possess it. The way is simply the emulation of Christ. And that is not, by saying emulation of Christ, I am not saying the emulation of his miracles or power or perfect living, but rather the emulation of Christ in one manner, the way of holiness, which is repentance towards God and faith in him. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is not repent from your sins. The gospel is repent and look towards God. Respond to the promises of God. The gospel is not sanctify yourself, get rid of your entanglements, destroy your former weaknesses and iniquities. Rather, the gospel is trust in Christ. Those who do trust in Christ are those who Isaiah intends to describe by those who possess the way of holiness. The way of holiness is trusting in God. Christ himself being the way perseveres those so as they will not go astray. Likewise, Christ is the true son of David. He is a greater David and the great shepherd and bishop of our souls. And he defends his sheep, slaying the lion and the beast. Look at verse nine. It says, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. How wonderful and precious is this knowledge, Christian, that you are not able to keep the lions off of the way. And you do not have to concern yourself with that. Christ himself is the one who perseveres his people. We see in 1 Peter that that the enemy, Satan, is called a roaring lion. And for those who are in Christ, not one of them are lost. All of them make it to the intended goal. Isaiah ends his prophecy concerning an eternal joy and ransomed condition of the people who come to Zion. Zion is, of course, a metaphor for the church. More in a moment. Verse 10, and the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to joy with singing. Notice clearly that the singing does not happen in Zion alone, but that it is something that they do along the way. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Those who enter into Zion are those who join the assembly of God, the assembly of Christ, the church. This is not intending a particular congregation. Notice clearly, this is not a promise that is only possessed by Grace Christian Fellowship. This is a promise that is possessed by all those who come into spiritual Zion, which the New Testament makes plain is the church. If you remember back to our series in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who I think is Paul, uh, says, you have come to Mount Zion. He says, you have not come to something that may be touched, but you have come to the heavenly 
Zion, the true Jerusalem, which has come down from heaven and is now in the earth. Nevertheless, as they enter into Zion, the joy that they have, the singing that they possess is multiplied and magnified. They are transformed from sorrow and sighing to joyful singing. It's very interesting to me that the commandments in the Old Testament do not include a commandment to sing. Although David establishes the tabernacle of David, a house in which he installs ministers who play music and sing songs to the Lord, in the old covenant, there is no commandment to sing in worship. In fact, much of what goes on in the old covenant worship is merely sacrificial. It's mostly silent. There's not a description of sound, but multiplied over and over again in the New Testament, the commands to those who are in the church is to sing. And not only to sing, but to encourage one another and to admonish one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs. This is what is supposed to mark a church. This is why, in our own congregational context, we emphasize singing so much, because it describes and displays and glorifies God in a unique way, a way that would not be present if it were merely just prayer, preaching, and the table. Singing is a necessary element for Christian worship because it proves and demonstrates the fulfillment of the joy of Christ coming to his people. These people are anointed with the Spirit, and they are lifted up in countenance. The joy of the saints is theirs even while on the way to holiness. Look closely at verse 10. It says, Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is something that is given to those who have been redeemed in Christ, everlasting joy, complete fullness of happiness and satisfaction in the gospel. Father, we ask you that you would glorify your son, that you would allow us to have the spiritual blinders taken off, that we would be like these people who Isaiah spoke of, that those who are blind would be able to see, those who are deaf would be able to hear. God, we ask you that you would give to us the spirit of joy, the spirit of happiness, namely your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to have a renewal of our mind concerning the joyful way of holiness. We pray, Lord, that you would convince us of our deep need to trust you as the center of our holiness, that we would not be like those who are tossed in the winds and the waves, but that our assurance, that our knowledge of your word would be firmly based upon trusting you, not how we walk day to day, not whether we sinned or not in the last hour, but rather that if our eyes are looking upon you. Father, we ask you that you would convince us of our deep need for joyful holiness, that we would no longer see sanctification as some lesser degree or a denial of valid pleasures alone, but that it would be seen as it is in this passage, the avenue and the way to everlasting joy. Father, we ask you to glorify your son today in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 126. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with song shouts of joy. 
Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The word of the Lord.